Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Mike Cosper, thank you so much for joining uh, Tony Jones and I today to talk about your uh, big hit, I guess is the right word, hit podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's something that Tony and I followed very closely along with many listeners of this show. And um, as I think you know, Tony and I did response episodes on my Patreon feed every two or three episodes. And we also had a pretty lively sort of Facebook discussion around those responses and the original episodes throughout the run of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I really enjoyed it. And I'm really glad to be able to talk with you. And Tony, thank you for using your immense connectivity to the the world of Christian celebrity and media to get Mike here with us today. <laughs> well, I just want to say that I appreciate Mike. I'm mainly thankful because I'm a well-known narcissist for having my own voice on every episode, except the final episode. And that's my only problem with the final episode is you change the intro. I'll just say, Dan, that, you know, I reached out to, well, of course, Mike and I connected because I was interviewed for the podcast. And I think maybe I think I might've emailed you after like one episode and you sent me your phone number and you're like, you can text me anytime after you listen. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And so 
then we were kind of texting after most episodes because I would hear something of some old voice of some friend. And I mean, today, today I heard from a friend in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with whom I have not spoken for 10 years, who said, I finally started listening. I heard your voice. I don't even know if my number's still in your phone. This is who I am. Like I've, I've heard from a ton of people just having been on your podcast. So thank you for having me on and for making it so successful that a lot of people heard it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm glad you all listened. Thanks for engaging with it the way you did. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. So I, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate being invited here as well. What I heard you say, Tony, is that you really miss being more famous and you got a nice little hit a little drug hit from being the Driscoll's an asshole guy uh, for six months. That's not untrue. And what's funny now, and this is another thing I've heard from a couple of people is now that that song is on a couple TV commercials. Yeah. People are like, Oh, I've saw, I was watching TV and that song came on the TV commercial. And I kept waiting for Tony to oh say gosh. Driscoll got far from being an asshole. Yeah. So my name, my voice saying that is forever associated with that song for, you know, however many thousands of people, millions of people, whatever. There's going to be some like meeting at Indeed where they're like, you know, oddly enough, this this one demographic of like white liberal ex-evangelicals are not signing up for our services, you know, because they've got PTSD from the song. Anyway. I want to disclose something because I feel like people who podcast, and this is true of like a lot of the guys in the intellectual dark web and all that stuff, which I'm not associated with, they never talk about their financial incentives to do these episodes. And I just want to say, uh, I was texting with Tony about it. I am the bird in your alligator mouth, Cosper. Tony and I's responses to your episodes increased my Patreon campaign by, I think, about 15%. I did the math. And I was very grateful for, I'm grateful for you making something good and robust enough and popular enough that, that Tony and I could respond to it. I think Tony and I actually became friends through doing that. So I have like a new friend thanks to that. And it gave us uh, something really interesting to talk about. It was like a, a well-timed and well-suited piece of work for us to respond to. And that being said, I hope that listeners trust me enough to know that I'm not going to you know, give you an easy time because of that. I'm going to engage with you. Honestly, I really, and I'll tell you what I liked about it. And I'll tell you the questions that I had and, and all of that stuff. But I just want to be honest. Cause like too often, I don't know people's incentives as a listener and it bothers me. So those are my incentives. And you know, that's the relationship I have to your work financially, if it matters. Yeah. I mean, I have incentives as well. I made the podcast and that's my job. So right. I, got, I got paid to make the podcast. So I am yeah. now disclosed as well. I think. Is that good? Is that helpful? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, you did. It. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're a professional journalist. And so it was a part of your job. I want to say this, like at the beginning, Matt Carter from Bad Christian Podcast and the band Emery, he and I actually kicked around, I want to say three years ago, that's probably about right. We had a meeting where we talked about making this show, making your show. I mean, our version of it. He knows almost everybody from the Mars Hill arena that you ended up interviewing. Obviously, not all of the other people in American Christianity. And we had the access. We didn't have the time or with the wherewithal. And I just want to say I'm glad we didn't make it. I'm glad that you made it. 
obviously would we would have done things slightly differently. Carter would have come in more critical. I would have had more of a psychological angle, but and like less of an ecclesiological, missiological angle. But I honestly think that you or your team, you know, making it through Christianity today for a target audience of the kind of people who might still change things about American evangelicalism as a result of hearing it, as opposed to my intended audience, which is people who are largely out of evangelical Christianity now, and Carters, who are even more so out of evangelical Christianity, I think that's better for the world, that you're the one who made it. I think you did a very good job. I said that throughout. I really liked listening to it. It was a good piece of podcasting. I There are craft things that I admire about it that I don't want to talk about too much because I think there's more interesting sort of substantive stuff to get into, but just good job. Thank you for making it. I'm glad that you're the one who made it. Hmm. Yeah, that's kind. I, I, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, there's so many stories like this. There was a lot of consideration of, do you tell the Driscoll story? Do you tell the James McDonald story? Do you tell the Bill Hybel story? And you know, I had relationships with a lot of these people before the podcast started. So there was a little bit of an, an in there that, that was helpful. But the other part of it too was, I mean, this whole thing happened online. So it's, you know, you didn't have to go digging a, a whole lot to find out what Driscoll said and thought and, and all of that. So it made it very easy to say, hey, we're not making this stuff up. I mean, he's saying these things from the pulpit. So yeah, I mean, it was an incredible project to be a part of. And I'm glad... I love that you say that too, because I, I feel like in this season of the the church in North America, I think it's important while things are going wild culturally for evangelicals like myself to say, hey, let's clean our house while, you know, let's clean our own house in this, in this season, even while we have concerns more broadly. Just on that craft aspect of it, the archived audio that you were able to unearth was like New York Times or Slate level work. And did, did it ever occur to you, like, why didn't the Mars Hill people scrub this stuff at some point? Like, where did all this stuff reside? I mean, you don't have to reveal your sources necessarily, but like, how hard did you have to work to get it? Was it people who kind of squirreled it away? And you had to win them over to get it. Cause some of the stuff like, you know, Driscoll talked about blowjobs at this Scotland pastors conference. It's like, yeah, I remember him saying stuff like that, but I surely do not have audio of him saying stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. The majority of it, I would say wasn't super hard to find. It took some digging. But, you know, I mean, there was a site, and I believe it's still up. It was down for a few days, but I think it's come back up because they've had copyright issues. Someone literally cloned bit for bit the Mars Hill site from the day it died, including all of the audio archives of his sermons. Now, the audio, those audio archives had been censored over the years where they were like cutting out people's names and cutting out sermons that had been controversial and all of that. But nonetheless, so there was a ton there. And as we were making the show, that was just a super valuable resource. There was a guy, you know, we thank him at the end of every episode, a guy named Ben Vandermeer, who has been on a project of his own for the last number of years. He was an ex-Mars Hill member. 
you know, in, in a similar way to the guy that was doing the, the MarsHill.se site, Ben was just like, this stuff happened. There should be an archive of it. It can't disappear. It can't go away. And so he's he's been on this trek over the years of trying to find every scrap of audio, video, you know, history, because obviously Driscoll has incentives to make certain aspects of it disappear. I mean, he he has, to be fair, on another level too, there's a lot of stuff that lives at his current website that's actually old Mars Hill tape that he you know, uses as part of his own archives. So, so it's out there, took some digging here or there, the Scotland thing. That was a, that was an interesting (laughs) find that took a little work. Let me ask a follow-up to that. I've talked to a couple of people, like my, a a good friend of mine who appears on your podcast. And I asked him like, have you, have you listened? He said, I, I quit after two episodes. I can't hearing Driscoll's voice is so triggering. And this is not a, a weak-willed person I'm talking about for you personally, like what was the personal experience of listening to hours and hours and hours of Driscoll's preaching? Really? I want to know, like, did it, (laughs) did it like affect your soul? Did you have to get up and walk around the block and take a break from it? Did you have to tell your kids to leave the room? I mean, I'm just wondering what, I can't imagine how many hours of him you had to listen to, to get, just the choicest bits for the podcast. You know, it's it's interesting because there's an element of it that it becomes clinical at a certain point, right? You know, I, I, I was thinking about it a while back and very good friend of mine's a surgeon and she does thyroid surgery. So she's literally cutting necks, slicing open necks all day, every day. And it's like the first probably three months of that was you know, she's probably going home feeling creepy every night and, and all of this. And, but now it's like, she's, it's like, she's baking bread or something. She just, this is what she does. She slices people's throats open. Um, I think there was an element of the process where, you know, even, even from the beginning, there was an element of the process that was very clinical because I've been doing podcasting and this kind of long form narrative stuff for the last six years. And so in some ways it's, it's working with tape and and all of this. I would actually say the weird part about it was it got harder later, meaning as the podcast came out, we heard more stories from people who had been affected by it. You saw the reaction that was not just about Mark, but about North American evangelical churches and, you know, a a sort of crisis of character and leadership and the ripple effects of it. And then, you know, part of the story of the production as well is that you know, starting in about mid-July, we had a number of people come forward to talk to us who had said no for a long time up until that point. And we had a number of inner circle leaders. This was sort of a different layer of inner circle leaders whose wounds from that experience, you know, were processed in a different way, in a more painful way, oftentimes. And so there was just a lot of conversation that happened with them and hearing their pain walking through that experience with them, that was like the soul, the burden. And not a burden in a sense that like, oh, I'm burned out, tired, talking to these tired guys. It was like, I felt their pain. Like I felt the empathy. And I lived my own experience of it with my own church, you know? Like, so I'm revisiting my own kind of traumatic encounters with bad leadership and spiritual abuse the whole time as well. Yeah, I mean, training to be a psychologist, speaking for myself, like that kind of compassion fatigue, burnout. You hear it a lot, especially from people who do a lot of trauma work. 
that, you know, people who specialize in trauma see fewer clients a week, you know, like that's just kind of a, a pretty standard rule of thumb. So that's not surprising to me kind of coming from that world. You know, you mentioned cleaning house from within evangelicalism. I'm wondering if there were sort of specific concrete changes within the world of American Protestantism or evangelicalism that you would hoped from the beginning that the podcast would contribute to? Are there, are there specific, you know, I, I want to almost say measurable, you know, like mm. measurable goals. That's the therapist in me, uh, I guess. And if that changed as more people came in and the story grew, I'm, I'd be curious about that as well. The biggest goal for me is to catalyze a conversation about an aspect of these, these kind of fallen leader stories that I think gets missed. And that's specifically like the, the personal cost, the soul cost, the destruction of community that's really hard to account for in the way that these stories typically get told. You know, it's not a knock on any of the journalism that was done around Mars Hill, whether it was the New York Times or CT or whomever that told the story as it came out. To me, this was an opportunity to say, hey, what's, let's go a layer deeper into those stories. You know, you'll often see follow-up where people go, well, what, where are they now with the pastor and what, what he, what is he doing now? And, and I mean, there are a lot of the bloggers that are part of the story in the Mars Hill story have continued to follow Mark in the years since and continued to, to tell that aspect of the story. We specifically called it the rise and fall of Mars Hill because we wanted to make it about the church and not about Mark in that way. And we end with a member of the church, you know, and not Mark for that reason. And so, yeah, I, I think catalyzing a conversation around the actual cost to the community, the actual cost to hearts and souls was huge for me. Does that, does that turn into anything kind of more concrete? You know, like for instance, at the SBC, you know, Southern Baptist conferences, people will, you know, propose changes or, you know, I, I don't know, like, you're more in that world than I am, frankly. So I don't even know how I would phrase yeah. some of those kind of changes, but does it turn into stuff like that, that you're kind of watching? And it's okay if you don't want to say that because that in some way dilutes your ability to bring it about as a public person doing journalistic work. I get that too. Yeah. I guess I'd say like, if I had those kind of specifics, I would lay them out. It's, it's more broad for me, right? It's like, to me, this is the kind of stuff that gets, it gets shoved under the table oftentimes. And and it gets shoved under the table because people are so quick to say, yeah, but look at the good things that happened. They planted churches, you know, these other good things. I mean, those were the issues. Those last two episodes, we were just pounding away at. And I'll tell you, like, go talk to some of those Mars Hill members and try to get that sentence out of your mouth before they respond to you who experienced that. Because, because I, as a you know, as a believer, I'm like, well, you're not, you're not wrong. You're just missing the point of this conversation. You know, you're so quick to jump to sort of the positive aspects and the mission moving onward and all the kind of things that we say to content ourselves after a crisis like this, that, you know, we, we, we fail like Job's friends failed. Like, I think we need to spend more time culturally sitting in the ashes with people who are hurt and listening to try to understand, okay, how did this happen? And what do we, what do we do differently? And yeah, my hope is that it's the beginning of a conversation that continues. And I think it's catalyzed some things in, in some interesting ways. It's exposed a culture of leadership. There, there've been some articles written in the last few months that are very interesting to me 
Kevin DeYoung had one had had one recently where he was sort of playing down like, you know, the word abuse gets thrown around pretty lightly these days and and this, that, and the other. And, and there's an element where I I kind of understand where he's coming from, but man, some of his he went to this place in the article where he said, really, the word abuse, you know, should really only be applied when it comes to like adults to children and all of that. And I'm like, man, like, oh, I, shit, let's, let's talk about power. <laughs> let me know? just let you know, Cosper, that <laughs> this is not a space where you have to be kind about Kevin DeYoung. <laughs> no, I mean, nobody that guy's here. Had, <laughs> that guy's had a tin ear for theology and church since I debated him in like 2003 at some conference. Yeah, it's. Yeah, yeah, you don't no no kid gloves <laughs> needed for any uh neo calvinists here. Sure. And and my my whole point is that's one of many examples where I'm seeing this reaction that says, "Okay, let's circle the wagons." And and I think the circling the wagons is there's always genuine fear of false accusation, right? Cuz it's a real thing. It happens. But to me like part of the response the fear of false accusation often drives people to a place right to the same place that that people with true accusation to, you know end up going which is right. how do we deal with the pr how do we spin you know how do we protect and and so you end up with another lack of transparency and you end up with a very unchristian spirituality around it which is you know when people falsely accused moses Moses didn't spin. He didn't attack. He didn't. What he cried out to God, and God defended him, and God carried out justice to to sort of make things right. So to me, it just strikes me as a fundamental lack of faith for for people in a place where they're not even where they're being falsely accused, but they're anticipating it and saying, "How do I protect myself from that?" And it's like, stop. You know, do you believe in God? Do you believe in justice? Do you believe in the Holy Spirit's work? And if so you're going to be in a vulnerable place as a leader. If you have character, you can weather that. And if you don't, then you need to figure out, well, how do we process this? How do we reframe the way people think about abuse and trauma so that these accusations don't come our way? All that kind of stuff, which I, I just think it's a, a very weird approach to this, as opposed to saying, hey, let's, let's listen to this story and understand the pain and understand the slippery slope dynamics of it as well that led to these experiences. I mean, the simplest explanation for people who theoretically believe in a God of justice, a God who stands up for, you know, comes on the side of truth, for them using the same PR and legal tactics that Donald Trump uses, for instance, the simplest explanation is that they're charlatans, that they are either deceiving people knowingly and they're full of shit, or some combination of that and they're self-deceived and they don't realize the extent to which they don't actually believe this stuff and that they've just gotten to a, a comfortable stage of life where they their job is good and, you know, they have the things that they want and need. And this is going to get in the way of that. And all that stuff is of a higher priority than sort of showing God and others that they really do rely on the love and mercy of God. I mean... That's the simplest and most cynical explanation. Obviously, that's true for some of them and not others. And we have no access, right, to know which person that's true for. So then that gets interesting. So how do we want the average person to respond, given that we don't know which ones are full of shit? And I don't know. And you guys can say what you will about Kevin Young. And I, I don't. 
yeah, I don't have particular beef with him interpersonally or anything like that. I, I that article I think in particular was had a lot of problems, but I, I what I think it just reveals, not to go down the Charles Taylor rabbit hole too far, but I think it reveals how much evangelical spirituality is defined by a a secular frame of management technique you know let's set up like what's the process what's the policy what's all of these different things and those are fundamentally unspiritual ways of responding to spiritual crises and to crises of character and personality and all of that not that we don't need those things but to me that when you see that as the knee-jerk reaction to a story like this it reveals a lot about the fact that what you know taylor's line that that we live out our faith under conditions of doubt well if we're living out faith under conditions of doubt then we're going to be we're going to be looking for what feels more substantive and reliable than a faithful response i just okay yes and don't you think there might also be something uh i think all three of us were raised in the evangelical church enough to be to have this pursuit of apologetics pounded into our heads. So it's been so much a part of, of evangelicalism that we need to defend God. We need to defend scripture. We need to defend the physical historical resurrection of Jesus, or we need to defend that Adam and Eve were actual human persons. This is not something that somebody who grows up as an Episcopalian is trained in, but we're all trained in this defend, 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 defend. And then something comes from within like this podcast that some people think is a threat to evangelicalism. It doesn't surprise me that much when it's so baked into the cake apologetics that immediately they're like, but what about, but what about all the churches they planted or what about the marriages Mark and grace saved or something like that. So some of the, blame is also, I think, on evangelicalism and how it trained us. Like our job is to defend this God and this institution against secularism. And Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell are going to tell you how to do it because those are not guys who wrote books about living their faith in doubt. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They're not Dallas Willard, you know, right. They're They're, not Charles Taylor. Right. They're right. Yeah. I, well, it's the same phenomenon, right? Like it's the same. There, there's a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, a guy named Rich Plass, and and one of his favorite phrases, and it's it's shaped my life for the last decade. He says the most profound thing we have to carry into ministry is our transformed and transforming presence, right? <laughs> you know, the only the only way for that to be an authentic reality is to live a life that's been transformed through grace and suffering and prayer, and these long, slow processes, right? And so everything you just named in terms of apologetics, and and I think you could look at a lot of, a lot of the kind of technique emphasizing trends inside evangelicalism, like certain methods of evangelism, or the purity movement, or certain ways of trying to sort of categorize young believers, all that kind of stuff. There, there may be elements of those, you know, particularly on the catechism side, there may be elements of that stuff that I think is really useful and really helpful. But because we don't have an understanding of spiritual formation, and because that doesn't occupy a central place, we've lost the idea that the church is a witness through its presence. 
both as individuals and as a community that is sort of blessed by grace to give a blessing. I think we've also lost touch with with grace itself, which is fundamentally a story about about sinners saved by a merciful and loving God. And when we lose that dynamic of sort of sin and death being at the heart of the story of the cross and resurrection, you know, th- then you you come back to this place where you're looking for performative righteousness. I need I now need to demonstrate my performative righteousness before the world, as opposed to sort of the Lutheran impulse, which would say, like, I need to demonstrate my deep sinfulness before the world in order to display the glory of 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 a God who loved me and and showed me mercy anyways. I love that you brought up Willard because I would just keep coming back to this idea. And it's it's been in my head throughout the process that like fundamentally, what are we, and we have a bonus episode of the podcast coming soon where we talk about this. Fundamentally, what do we expect when we show up in our churches, when we belong to a community? And I I just think that there are these fundamental questions that the church has lost touch with about how are we transformed into the image of Jesus? And and what is, what does that imply for our presence in the world? As opposed to, I'm going to join a tribe, I'm going to participate in its rituals and, you know, public displays of allegiance and all of this. And then we act surprised when lives aren't actually changed and people are deconstructing because they're like, I see so much inconsistency. And, it, and I think what sucks right now is, the reaction to evangelicals to deconstruction is doubling down on a lot of the things and missing the point of like, this is, this is a story about grief and heartbreak and disillusionment, not about the the effectiveness of the case you made for the atonement or the inerrancy of scripture. Right. So as I've kind of drifted away from theological explanations, this is really one of the, like, if I had made the show, this would have been one of the main differences, I think, between you and I is that where you would go toward a theological lens, you know, law versus gospel, maybe a Charles Taylor type account of secularity versus religious culture. I'm inclined towards psychological explanations, and that's why I eventually started studying psychology. And I want to just throw this kind of model that's been that your show has helped me form. And it, it goes something like this, that following Christ will like actually doing it is never going to be popular. It will just sort of necessarily rub against most of our instincts individually and socially, though it will fill those people with so much joy and peace that they will keep going. That's why the church will never die. But if anything gets big enough I'm kind of at a point where I'm going to assume that 95% of the time there's a bunch of bullshit at the center of that. Maybe not the whole thing. There's some there's some kernel of of goodness, but if 5,000 people find the same church compelling, it probably sucks and is unhealthy. And it's <laughs> probably got a narcissist at the center and it's probably sugar as opposed to complex proteins and, you know, fill it in however you want. Not that that's not helpful in some way for people, you know, Dr. Oz is helpful in some way for some people, but I wouldn't want to send a client to Dr. Oz. Like it's not the real thing that people need when the real shit of life hits them other than it's a community of people. And that is one of the most powerful things there is. So 
like Jim Wellman from the University of Washington laments when megachurches are struggling because they basically provide free pseudotherapy to millions and millions of Americans. I think that's right. But I would almost never turn to one of these, quote, thriving ministries for anything remotely close to the truth. You know, Mm -hmm. I would assume it'll be false. And if there's a really incredibly kind old person in my life that most people don't know the good stuff they're doing, that's 20 times more likely to provide me with truth than anything shiny on TikTok or anywhere else. And it's almost like a law of human psychology, maybe in decadent societies like ours, it's more true. I mean, I don't really know, but I would apply it to Kenya too. Like, oh, a big mega church in Kenya. My assumption is they're selling bullshit to people that is that works in the short term. That could be wrong and even maybe bigoted toward cultures that I don't understand. But I'm having a hard time arguing against a model like that. I'm wondering what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated, right? <laughs> because I think the dynamics that make churches really big are the same dynamics that make everything big. Right. Like the impulse in academia is always, with the few exceptions, the impulse is always, how do we get bigger? How do we get more students? How do we get more land? How do we get bigger buildings? How do we get bigger endowments? And of course, like, you know, capitalism runs the same way. And so I think there's an ethic of growth that's so deeply ingrained in, you know, the North American imagination, the American imagination, especially. That's part of the church phenomenon. I think you could do a whole, someone should write a, you know, PhD thesis on, the parallels between sort of American pioneerism and the megachurch phenomenon, you know, sort of the psychology of it, the language of it, the personalities, like, why do all these guys go West? You know, like, why are all these amazing, you know, influential megachurches, you know, on in Southern California? So I think that's, you know, and I don't say this just to simply to defend the megachurch, because I think there, there's plenty to critique of the megachurch but I, th- I think the phenomenon of sort of why it exists is as much a broader cultural thing as it is anything else. I agree with you. Like the influence of a soulful, wise person is far more important on the formation of character and, you know, the transformation of a life than it is, you know, than showing up on Sundays in a, the room the size of a cruise ship and with no windows. At the same time, I, I know enough examples of people who live in those environments where they've found a pocket of community inside of it that's that's real. 100%. And I know enough leaders that are invested in some of those churches where they're trying to figure out, you know, they do that. How do we do that? There are megachurch guys I've met who look at what they do and think what we're doing is awesome and everybody should do it just like us. And there are a lot of guys that lead those big churches that are like, we got really big and it's more than we can manage and we're trying to figure it out because they understand the flaws of it and they understand the strengths of it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated and, and uh, you know, I, I'm trying after we're having worked through this experience too, to just not paint with too broad of a brush while also wholly believing that like the elements of the megachurch that I'm much happier to critique are the elements of it that are very consumeristic, that are not built to last and that disconnect the church from a sense of its global orientation, its historic orientation, and really its duty to, to the cities and communities that they're a part of. Mike, I think one of the interesting things, and, and maybe part of the reason your podcast hit 
so big and captured some kind of zeitgeist is because for so long, when shit has gone south in evangelicalism, a lot of what I call the evangelical intelligentsia, the like Christianity Today, Wheaton College, InterVarsity Press, the, the thoughtful, you know, the Mark Knoll uh, thoughtful evangelicals have been able to say, well, that's Paula White. That's not me. That's Benny Hinn. That's not really me. Like even CT would distance themselves from John Piper or something, but you can't like that crowd can't distance themselves from Mark Driscoll because they embraced Mark Driscoll, you know, and the Tim, the whole kind of Tim Keller, Sovereign Grace and all those ancillary groups, Acts 29 that were related. So don't you think part of the reason it hits so close to home is because it wasn't about Benny Hinn or Paula White. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So much of what he said was close to the heart of mainstream evangelicalism that that when you brought out the outlying elements of it, they stood out like sore thumbs in ways that were that it wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, if Benny Hinn was doing demon trials, nobody would be surprised by that. Right, right. Yeah. And to have a guy who had shared the stage with a lot of those different names and spoken at colleges and seminaries and different places with a lot of prestige and a lot of, I think that definitely was, was a factor for sure. On a, maybe a funny little note. Did you see that um, Steve Inskeep after six years of trying finally got an interview with Donald Trump No, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Steve yeah, Inskeep. The morning edition host on NPR has been trying and trying and trying. Finally, Trump, he got Trump on the phone one morning and it was a very brief interview, but I'm sure he had rehearsed that interview many times in his head for six years until it finally happened. And then Trump hung up on him, actually, of course. I'm just wondering, you didn't get the chance to interview Driscoll, but I'm sure you thought about it. (laughs) What do you think your first question would have been if he would have just answered the phone one of the times you called? You know, as I've thought about it since the podcast has been done, I had kind of resolved in my mind as of like June that he wasn't going to talk to me. We'd made our asks directly, indirectly, through other people, all of that, no response. So I'd kind of locked it into my mind that he wasn't going to. There were a couple of moments during the series where there was just sort of a blip of like, oh, maybe something's happening, you know, but it all turned out to be just shadows, you know, nothing. Since the podcast has been finished, the first thing I would want to ask him is, okay, you tell me what happened, right? Like we've told told our version of the story. We've heard from people who were part of the church. They've had their peace. You tell me what happened. Because I really want to know, like, what do you think happened? He's had the platform to do that with, you know, uh, Brian Houston a while back. I don't think he can hedge things the way he hedged them in those conversations after this podcast has come out. So, I mean, what could he possibly say? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, none of it like, happened. Yeah, <laughs> none of it happened. None of those recordings of my, those are all <laughs> fake. I mean, deep fake, deep fake. So he, he literally actually there was a write-up of the podcast in the wall street journal. And that's the one place we know where he's made a given a response to it. And the journalist who who interviewed him said, you know, what do you have to say about, you know, the things that have been asked regarding you telling women, instructing women to give their husbands blowjobs and for evangelistic reasons or whatever it was, it was phrased something like that. And, you know, he basically says, 
that's ridiculous and absurd that I would be accused of that. Of course, I would never teach anything like that. I have 20 years of ministry behind me to prove that I would never say such a thing. And it's like, we've got like six clips of you saying it right. from a pulpit. Like, are you kidding me? I think that we're in a season of really interesting uh, and fun patron-exclusive episodes. We're in the middle of a series on the four Gospels uh, with Ariel from Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible, one of the all-time best-named podcasts on the internet. And next week, there will be another episode, and her editor... Ash Nerve, co-host of the Boys Bible Study podcast, another one of the best named podcasts on the internet, uh, actually joins us to talk about three passages from the Gospel of Mark. So that's coming up next week. And this past week, uh, we heard another Generation Gap Culture Hour episode with my friend Tony Jones, and we actually had his son Tanner Jones on, and we talked about ostensibly it was to talk about Gen Z and get a sense of like, how does a member of Gen Z think about various sort of deconstruction and church related issues. But what became clear early on is that in Tanner's mind, his generation is so siloed by the social media and news algorithms that run those platforms that he, he feels like the stuff that shows up in his feeds and his friends' feeds is like quantitatively and qualitatively different than other people's feeds in other subcultures. We also talked about his love for Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson briefly. Mostly we talked about Rogan. And uh, Tony and I pushed back on that quite a bit while treating Tanner with respect and, and being grateful for him uh, to spend his time joining us. But it was, uh, it's generating some conversation, I would say, on the Facebook group. Um, and if you become a patron, you get access to all that. The Facebook group, which is for patrons only, as well as these exclusive episodes, at least two per month, in addition to the main feed episodes like this one. So if you find that interesting, you want to hear that stuff, then become a patron. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. It's five bucks a month. There is a sliding scale. If you are in a season of life where that is not doable financially, you can email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, I think that's it for this week's uh, spotlight on the Patreon. Back to our really excellent conversation with Mike Cosper. So this is probably, Mike, the thing I thought from a more critical is the wrong word because it's more about emphasis than it is about disagreeing with you. But the thing I found myself thinking the most, and I do want to say, I think I understand this difference more. You saying that your kind of primary focus was the personal cost, the destruction of community, basically focusing on the victims and all the fallout, not just the sort of celebrity of it. And so that helps me understand this difference. But from episode one, I was like, narcissistic personality disorder. I mean, like, if you start with that, and you can never diagnose anyone who's not your own client, but if you start with the assumption of narcissistic personality disorder, then almost everything Driscoll says or does in the entire podcast 
you know, it's it's Occam's razor. It's the most straightforward explanation. And people who have true NPD, most of them do not really get better. It's a very low percentage because the personality disorder, it changes the way you see reality and you're actually incapable. Many people are incapable of seeing ways in which they don't have it all together and don't have the answer. And so that was kind of like my big note throughout of like, I would have loved to get like more with Chuck DeGroat or another psychiatrist to come on and just be like, look, I can't diagnose people, but like, let me just explain to you what narcissistic personality disorder looks like. And I have friends whose parents have been diagnosed with that. It's so sad. It is usually terminal. It just seems like a perfect explanation for him why he why he would. It's just like Trump. He'll just say the opposite of what's on tape because not just because he's cunning, but because he literally can't see that he could be the bad guy and could be wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for me to feel hesitant about pressing that too hard. Right. You know, I'm not a psychologist and none of the psychologists we would talk to would want to get too close to saying anything that would sound like making an accusation or a diagnosis like that. So, yeah, I mean, we we stayed away from it in that sense. I also, I mean, to be honest with you, there were certain words and phrases for the podcast that I just felt a little bit allergic to anyway, because they're, they're too quickly tossed out, you know? You know, there were a lot of people who were sort of beating this drum on on social media saying, I don't understand why they won't just say the words toxic masculinity. And my response to that is, well, everyone is saying toxic masculinity. I'd rather show you something and let you make a judgment about it and be discerning about it. Yeah. And again, like, because I think words like narcissism are a little bit of a catchphrase, words like, yeah, toxic masculinity in the same way. To me, I think the advantage of what we did in the show is to just present you something that regardless of what you label it, it's undeniably, there's an undeniable phenomenon that you have to reckon with. Sure. Um, yeah. The flip side of it for us, the one the one word that I did want to delve into because I think it's because I think it's problematic in a different way in our culture was the word trauma, um, mm-hmm. because that's another word that's a buzzword right now. And it gets applied to everything, you know. I mean, I was seeing it this week. There were people using the word trauma to describe their reaction to a New York Times op- editorial or op-ed. Yeah. And to me, I, I'm like, hey, that's a really important word. It has a really important meaning. Let's talk about that word. Let's use it and let's show the effect of it in, in people's lives because of the context. Because there are people who would be dismissive of spiritual trauma in that sense uh, because the word does get... I think overused culturally. Right. I think I agree with the substance of what you're saying and not to get too nitpicky, Sure. but the difference in my mind with something like labeling it NPD or much like NPD is that like all the times, all the people around him who thought, well, I thought maybe this time he would change. And I just imagine the number of people who must be surrounded by leaders like that. And like what I want those people to know is there is a 10% chance that this person changes clinically. That that might not be the right percentage, but it's low. You could look it up. Yeah. And the expectation of that and, and and frankly as I you know I don't know how much you know about my research around spiritual abuse and stuff, but eventually my 
My hope is to help prevent that within the church, within church contexts. And the kind of realism around a certain kind of bad actor who is narcissistic is that they are essentially a cancer to your organization and mm. it will eventually destroy it. It will inevitably, it, it's like a person with a completely untreatable addiction to drugs mm. or something. It will destroy the things around them. And like, we should be extremely careful with people who might have narcissistic personality disorder. And it's a clinical term and it's not easy to, to determine it. And so I get it. I don't, I don't think it's quite the same as like the, a buzzword like toxic masculinity, which doesn't really have an agreed upon definition. This mm -hmm. is in the DSM. You know, there, there is a way to talk about this with more care, but that sets people up expectation wise to recognize when they should not be involved with someone. Now I recognize I'm, that's coming from me. I am like someone who plans to focus on working with people who have religious trauma for the rest of my professional life. That's, that's my world. So that's my bent. And so I recognize you're, you're making your own show and I would make my show differently, but that would just be the pushback that I would have there. And, you know, you can respond or not. No, I, I, I think it's a perfectly fair critique. I mean, it's, it's a judgment we had to make and there were a lot of complicated reasons and yeah, I, I totally understand why someone yeah. would do it differently. As, as somebody who's been diagnosed by people online, I appreciate you holding back on that. I don't, I don't think as obvious as it may seem to us, I don't think you can listen to a guy's sermons from 10 years and give him a diagnosis probably without sitting with him in a clinical setting. But Mike, you know, you mentioned this about like Driscoll getting, tell your side of the story. Like, what do we get right? What do we get wrong? And you already mentioned that as the podcast was gaining popularity, you started to hear from people who had earlier declined your interview requests. I mean, people, inner circle, staff members and things like that. And that became interesting as a listener to listen to, to it evolve. And I know you were, you know, making these decisions on the fly and you were letting these guys and most of them were guys tell their own stories. But I also, you know, there was criticism online too, that these were Mark's enablers. And did you ever, in, in letting them tell their own stories without really like holding their feet to the fire per se, because I, that's not the kind of podcast this was, but did you ever feel like you were letting them, they were getting an opportunity to redeem their reputations on this wildly popular podcast when they had been the people who'd been like pumping gas into Driscoll's gas tank for many years. And I mean, I'm sure you did. So I'm just wondering how you, as, as a journalist and a Christian dealt with that potential. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's complicated. And I think different people who we spoke to without like naming names necessarily, I think different sure. people we spoke to are at different stages of the process in terms of what they can own. I think if anybody sits down with Jesse Bryan or Nate Burke, they're going to be very clear and quick to tell you I was an enabler. I mean, Nate Burke's line, I think, is the one that most people have, have resonated with, that he feels like he has a Confederate uniform in his attic. And I think if you've been a part of a community like that uh, and on a staff like that, you know what that means. You know exactly what that means. Telling those stories, giving voice to some of those you know, those experiences, Jesse talking about it as well, you know, feeling like, you know, he left Mars Hill and, and 
spent the next has spent the decade since like studying propaganda and professional lying. And, you know, he has this incredible marketing agency right now where like their number one value is we just tell the truth. You know, we tell the truth about whatever we're doing. If you want to lie about whatever you're trying to do, go to someone else. So I, you know, we tried to address it in those ways. I felt like there's an easy way for the podcast to descend into an airing of grievances once you start to press into, you know, what do you take responsibility, you know, because because you also just get into these weird details about like, well, here's a specific conflict and this guy got fired and, you know, what do you want to own from that? What do you want to own from this? And I I felt like that stuff is all there. A lot of that stuff is on the internet, you know, also kind of a boring episode if you, you know, like Actually, if you're yeah. not, a, if you didn't go there, you don't, you know, you, most people don't have the context for that right. level of granularity of airing of grievances. Right. So for, for me, it was like, I want to deal with it. And the ways for us, the ways we really tried to deal with it were giving Nate and Jesse the ability to, to share those experiences. And then the Paul Petrie episode, state of emergency, you know, that story ends with, uh, I believe it's 24 elders voting to kick this guy out of church, kick him out of leadership, shun his family, because he had the gall to send an email and say, I think there are some problems with this governance document. You know, I mean, the, the layers of that are just, they're just wild. And to me, what they illustrate is two things. One, it's undeniable when you hear that story that like, okay, there was definitely a culture of enabling. But two, and, and I think it's a subtler message, and you know, it's one of the things I wonder, could we have pressed on it and made it more explicit? And it's something I wonder about the entire series, honestly. There is a power to Driscoll's persona and to leaders like Driscoll. I say to people all the time, like when, when people are just talking casually to me and they're like, I just hear these stories from these people and they sound so sensible. And I'm like, how could you have put up with this for 16 years, 18 years, 10 years, whatever? And my response to them is always, go spend five minutes in a room with Mark Driscoll. And I would guess that like seven out of 10 people will end up drinking the Kool-Aid after five minutes with Mark because he's brilliant, he's charming, and it's hard for someone who knows how to be brilliant and charming and wants your affection in the way that, that a person like Mark does. You have to really know who you are to walk out of that room not feeling pretty disoriented by the experience. That is kind of what I was getting at with this kind of rough model I have that like, <laughs> there's something about human charisma and a certain kind of, you know, deep salesmanship that some human beings have. Like comedians talk about how they are often quite wounded and, and their impulse to learn to be funny all the time is a kind of a natural reaction to some sort of, you know, uh, struggle, right? Or feeling of insecurity in their childhood home or whatever. So then I, I learned this skill to sort of make up for that. So I don't know what it is that people are doing when they learn or develop that in, insane level of natural charisma. But it's like, if we want to disciple a nation or a world of Christians, like, should part of that be warning people against that kind of charisma? Like, yeah. this is where I, these are the kind of questions that I feel like, I wonder if you didn't get into them because 
literally nobody can get into them yet. Like it's a new thought if you didn't get into them because it would put sort of evangelical Christianity too much in the hot seat. And I don't say that, I don't say that in a way of accusing you, but just that like it would be with, it would be outside sort of the scope of Christianity today's work maybe. But some of that kind of like, yeah, we're rejecting hierarchical models. We are sticking with a charismatic leader. This is how most of the churches in our world are run. It's how most people get people in the door to hear the gospel. But I'm kind of wondering like, yeah, but is it inherently unstable, like a, a very heavy radioactive element? You know, is it the kind of thing that, that people need to learn to identify in a protective kind of a way? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I I feel like we we tried to communicate that. And so if that didn't come out, then, I, you know, I won't try to defend us. Um, but that's definitely part of what we were after is to say, we keep doing this because we keep making these decisions about the kind of communities we form and the people we gather around, you know? I, yeah, that point, def, that point is definitely taken. Mm-hmm. And Dan, Dan, I don't know what the very nature of evangelicalism is. It's, it's not a, a centered set, you know, it's more like a bounded set, kind of a, a doctrinally bounded set. Driscoll couldn't have gotten ordained in the PCUSA right. or the Episcopal Church or the United Methodist Church because they would have run him through an ordination process. They would have run him through uh, a, a battery of psychological exams. He would have had to meet with people. I mean, this is the thing that I, I almost you know, was screaming about this at times on the Patreon, uh, your Patreon podcast is just like, why isn't Cosper saying, None of these guys is ordained. This is insane. None of these guys who are called pastors, none of them has been to seminary. None of them. And I'm not a big fan of ordination, to be totally frank, but it does. There are at least guardrails in the mainline church that evangelicalism almost completely lacks unless you voluntarily put yourself into uh, one of the evangelical denominations that kind of mirrors the mainline ordination process. But that's not the kind of church that Mars Hill was. Mars Hill, they just internally decided somebody was a pastor and bestowed this title on them. Some guy Mark met at a freaking conference who then loaded his wife in a van and moved across the country a month later. It's insane. You know, like out to an outsider, you're just like, there are no guardrails. He just, anybody he wants to call a pastor, he calls a pastor. They've had no training. And it, again, to your point, Mike, I was in rooms with Driscoll and everybody in the room was an alpha male, myself included, Doug Padgett, Brad Cecil, Chris C. I could go down the list. And still Driscoll was the alpha of the alphas in every one of those rooms every time. And there were, you know, everyone was jostling and fighting. Uh, Michel Foucault would have had just a, he could have written a textbook on, on those emerged early Terra Nova meetings. Um, but Dan, I don't know who, who would do that in evangelicalism. That's not how evangelicalism works. And I would just say too, like the problem is not the, the problem is not fixable in that way. Right. Because we have this culture of entrepreneurial church leadership where, like, like you said, like he, there, he would never get, you know, ordained in a, 
in a situation like that, he'd never want to be. Why does he need that? You know <laughs> yeah, what I right, mean? Right. And you know, and it was funny. I mean, again, this is there's some bonus content coming that's a little more analysis of this stuff. And you know, I talked to a Presbyterian, and and I'm, I'm like, so how do we fix this? And he's like, well, what we need is Presbyterianism. I talked to an Anglican. Like, how do we fix this? Well, we need sacramentalism and Anglicanism. I talked to a very like somebody who's basically embodying like 17th century particular Baptist practices. How do we fix that? Well, what you really need is good, solid congregationalism, you know? And it, it reminded me, I mean, speaking of Dallas Willard, he's got this great quote. I remember hearing him give a lecture one time and somehow or other he was talking about, he was talking about the 10 commandments and he just, as an aside, he says, you know, pretty much any political philosophy in the history of man would lead us to utopia if everybody in society obeyed the Ten Commandments, you know? Mm. And I think that's true of church governance, right? Like, at the end of the day, almost any model of church governance, like, there is sort of the positive theological framework that says, we believe the Scriptures are teaching this, right? But there's also, like, the negative side of it that is, how is this a bounded community, and and what are we determining? Like, how do we create boundaries for inclusion, exclusion, discipline, et cetera, et cetera? And I think almost any one of those frameworks work in the same way, so long as they're full of people of character and humility and able to admit when they're wrong and take responsibility for it and all of that. But if you throw, you know, if you throw a leader like a Driscoll or like a Hybels or like a James McDonald into that organization whose presence is so strong and, you know, willingness to sort of flout policy or whatever else is in place, you throw them into that room. I mean, they're just, it doesn't matter what's written down on the page. And, you know, th there were stories we couldn't get into just time-wise, detail-wise, and all of that, where you had really great policy written on the page at Mars Hill for many, many of those years that sort of protected the church and created accountability and all of that kind of stuff. And it was just totally ineffective because Mark was just so strong a personality. Well, and there was no real teeth. Like, there was no presbytery that could mm -hmm. just fire him, at which point he would leave the Presbyterian church and start a non-denominational church and right. do whatever the hell he wanted, right? Well, and I actually, there was, but the consequences of firing him created such a crisis for all of them because they right. were invested in these ways that they couldn't fire him. They could have, up until the polity changed in 2011-ish, there was a great polity in place for holding him accountable and firing him and, and all that. It was there. Right. Number one, it was really never brought to bear on him at any point because no one ever saw anything of 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 issue with it. Because they they were they were on the mission, they were in that they were on the team, you know, all of that kind of stuff. By the time there were issues that were strong enough where people wanted to speak up, they had cut the legs off of all that policy. Now, this might be me just doing yet another one of these, well, what this person will tell you will solve it. Although this isn't a solution, but, you know, this would be the, the liberal Protestant, one of the angles is that as long as the stakes are eternal, as long as for the average person in any of these churches, on any of these elder boards, whatever, as long as what we're really doing here is saving souls from eternal hellfire and saving them to eternal union with God. It does seem like we've got an incentives problem because 
even though I believe that psychologically human beings can't actually value things sort of infinitely, like there, it might be that we value them 10 times more because we think a soul is at, at stake or something. But because that is essentially an inexhaustible well of value and a, and a multiplier of whatever it is we're talking about, that will sort of necessarily cause an imbalance when there is possible impropriety, when somebody wants a guardrail put up, you know, fill it out however you want. Yeah, but like, okay, maybe this is just a whiny little girl. And if it is just a whiny little girl, then we're sacrificing maybe another thousand souls that would go to hell if this guy can't keep preaching. So there's some level of defusing that you you can't do if you keep those stakes. And again, that's my sort of liberal Protestant kind of bent, I think. But I'm curious what you think about that coming coming from within, you know, and I know there are different evangelical views on that. You can be an evangelical maybe harder these days, but you, you, you have been able to be one and not ascribe to sort of eternal torment, but most do. And that's certainly in the water. I don't know if you have any thoughts around that. Yeah. I think it comes back to a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. Right. I mean, I do believe in hell salvation, like the whole bit, sign me up, Billy Graham, I'm on board. Right. And I would agree that like, I think there is a way that those dynamics get framed that are problematic in exactly the ways you just described. That justification gets made all the time. Like to throw back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, that is ultimately the motive for people saying, but look at what happened, you know, because that calculus keeps happening of like the soul saved and all of that. I think it's really hard to go back to Jesus as we understand him in the gospels and see him making those kinds of calculations at any point. Mm-hmm. Um, He's happy to alienate people for the sake of his principles, virtues. He's happy to upset people and send them away. And I believe in the sovereignty of God in such a way that the very idea that we would kind of sacrifice character and principle for the sake of, because I think the whole sort of decisionism thing is a real problem as well. Decisionism isn't salvation, you know, isn't discipleship, et cetera. Right. So I, I think there, I think there are all kinds of other places that without losing the theological framework necessarily, you can you can say, but this whole calculus is completely jacked up if you're allowing a way of looking aside at all of this. I also think there's another element of it that's that's interesting, which is that I think part of the reason you get situations like Mark's, you know, and Mark himself set him, you know, Mark set himself up for this in many ways, is you create these standards for Christian leaders where they're sort of this like spiritual ubermensch as opposed to being sort of normal humans and having their troubles and all of that by 2014 and and all that was unfolding at the time and all of that no question it was time for mark to go Uh, it was long overdue you know for mark to go but you look at some of the confrontations you look at some of the things he did when he was younger and and all of that and you know, maybe as you in, indicate, like there are personality issues at work where he's simply incapable of owning those things. But I think part of the framework that makes owning failure difficult for pastors more broadly outside of Mars Hill is because they feel like they can't give an inch on their persona and their perception as, you know, entrepreneurial geniuses, full of the character and of grace and mercy of God. And of perfect, you know, perfect Solomonic judgment at all times. Gosh, 
which is just nothing like Jesus. So Tony had to run early. We'll go another maybe 10 minutes or so. I wanted to talk about sources of criticism or criticisms that, you know, how you how you found it. My guess would be that the largest uh, motivator for various criticisms would be coming from people who are sort of not the intended audience. And I'm assuming that sort of, you know, like Stephen King talks about having an ideal reader. You have sort of like, it's not that the book isn't for other people too, but you got to make a piece of art for a particular kind of, you have someone in mind. You don't want to have 10 different people in mind or it'll end up uneven, right? As a work. And so I'm just, I'm assuming that the ideal listener in that sense, the sort of central listener is someone who at least reads Christianity Today online, if not is a subscriber or a potential subscriber. And as I said earlier, I think that that was actually a a great strength because these are the kind of people who might actually change something about this evangelical system, as opposed to people like, you know, just my average listeners or who find themselves where I am theologically are, we are not very well situated to change evangelicalism. So I would guess that like the majority of criticism would be sort of explainable by coming from a person or a group of people that are just too far, too many standard deviations away from the middle. Is that what you found? Um, no. Well, I mean, there was a lot of that for sure. Yeah. Right. There was also a lot of criticism that came from, there were a lot of people kind of in conservative camps that right. felt like, you know, we were, the whole podcast was a, a missive against complementarian theology, for instance. You know, there were the sort of fans of John MacArthur, you know, wanted us to make the podcast about how John MacArthur took down Mark Driscoll, which is not true. I mean, it's just simply not true. Right. So, so there was a lot of that for sure. And then, I mean, there definitely was criticism from beyond, this, you know, especially from the left, people who really felt like we just could have gone harder and why aren't you condemning reformed theology more broadly? And why aren't you being harder on complementarianism? And, you know, why aren't you saying that the problem isn't Mark, but every single pastor in the United States is just like Mark. And it's like, "Ah, it's it's a little more complicated than that. And, and I think it's a little more complicated, even like we, we tried to sort of bring some attention to, and some pressure to the question of those who were his quote unquote enablers from outside Mars Hill, his who shared platforms with him. And there are questions asked there. There are issues to ask there. But there's also complicated dynamics there where it's like people who are critics of the gospel coalition have their reasons to do so. Right. But also it's not a denomination. It was never built as an accountability organization. It was built as a network. Yes, it was a platform. They had their reasons for Mark being there and they had their reasons for Mark not being there later. So I, I think, you know, a lot of times I look at that stuff and I'm like, if we had more time and we had spent more time with it, I think we would have just ended up trying to tell people it's just a lot more complicated than you think it is. <laughs> you <know>? Right. So <laughs> nobody would be, <laughs> no one would be satisfied with that answer. No, right. None yeah. of the particulars. Yeah. And there's, there are sort of limits to the form, mm-hmm. which are a part of that for sure. Yeah. Cause I think the primary issues that, that come up with that again and again are, which we did try to get to are why did people with good reputations continue to come around Mark? And I think it's because the assumption inside evangelicalism is to a fault. The assumption is to the, is, is for good. So they're looking at Mark and they're saying, man, this guy, the way he preaches, it attracts all these young people. He's challenging men. We see the, you know, we see the ways this 
is good, could be better. We think we can help him get there. And there's just a ton of benefit of the doubt that goes into that. And Mark proved over time that he was not interested in participating in sort of an evolution process where he was formed by them. He instead was, you know, I think what he demonstrated was every time that happened, whether it was Alderman joining his church, John Piper, the Gospel Coalition, you know, Rick Warren and, you know, other megachurch guys later on, they were always leverage points for him to achieve what he wanted next. And once they had pulled him up into his, you know, to that tier of influence or whatever, he was he was ready to look for the next tier. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I think the the episode where I felt the most uncomfortable, where where I felt like, you know, frankly, you kind of left the most on the court, not the Bobby Knight one, was the demon trials one where you talk about, you know, that old hoax of the photographs of fairies and this very natural human tendency to believe supernatural claims without very much evidence because we're wired to, we, you know, we have all these reasons. And, you know, as a, as a former evangelical who has liberalized much of my theology, I thought, you know, in my mind, the, the very clear next step is like, okay, the demon trials are probably bullshit, but like, what about the resurrection? What about the virgin birth? Like, what about miracles? Like you had a, you had a a kind of a throwaway line that you didn't spend a lot of time on. Like Christians believe in miracles, but like, I am a Christian who doesn't believe in miracles. And that's my own personal, you know, I recognize I'm coming from that the way that I define miracles anyway, as like, which a lot of people disagree and Christian philosopher friends of mine don't like this definition, but as like God breaking the laws of physics to do something in, in time and space. You know, so that one was maybe the one for me where it jumped out the clearest. I'm sure other people, maybe people who are more sensitive to the complementarian uh, and patriarchal stuff might have felt coming up a little short on some of those episodes, even though I recognize that they were primarily criticisms of complementarianism, those the episodes that focused on that. And I thought you included some really great, powerful stuff in those episodes. So I don't know. I guess that's just like one example I'm curious to hear your take on. Like, why not take that one further or, or take it to the point of like, why do any of us need charismatic leaders? Is that because we're gullible? Why do we like Trump? Is that because we're gullible? You know what I mean? Like, where do you decide sort of it has to be less than two hours? Is it, you know, how do you make those decisions of where to sort of stop following that thread out? I guess that's the that's the process question of it. Yeah, it's a good question. I think for a lot of this, for, for for many of the episodes, I wanted to be careful to resist the temptation to tell people what to think, you know? Mm-hmm. And part of that is like, I, I do genuinely want to be respectful of kind of a breadth of human experience, Christian experience, evangelical perspective, and all of that. With that episode, I mean, we made a very deliberate choice on that episode to do two things. To set up this reality, as you, I mean, I think the way you put it was pretty, was pretty helpful that like, we're inclined to want to, you know, believe in experiences of transcendence. And so someone who comes to us with like the secret knowledge, like, like Mark kind of implied in those stories and circumstances, yep. someone who sort of operates that way, you know, we have a temptation to go there um, and to, to believe uh, because of that human tendency. You know, we also made this very deliberate decision to have Sam Storms on 
because I wanted to have a voice who was firmly in Mark's camp. He's complementarian, he's reformed, he's charismatic and all of that. Come on there and say, this is a load of crap, you know? Right. Um, because what's so, to me, what's so evident in the framing that you hear and the way Mark talks about spiritual warfare and demon trial, all of that, it's very, 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 it's very oriented around a differential based on power. And what I what I think is really helpful about Sam, you know, this scholar, New Testament guy, the whole the whole bit, Sam is able to basically say, look, I live in this camp, but what's happening here, and in many ways, it's an indictment of a lot of what's happening in those kinds of charismatic circles, and we just didn't spread it out that far. But what what's happening here is as much defined as you know, an issue of power and manipulation as it is, as it is anything else. And so it, it, it enabled us to just basically say, look, let's critique this movement from the inside. And again, I mean, I think a response I, I have to a lot of the critics who are like, why don't you go take it farther? You know, why don't you address this or whatever, or, or draw out the conclusion is like, I trust the audience to think, you know? So, so like the, the episode about you know, it, was, it was titled The Things We Do to Women, where we talk about women's experiences in Mars Hill. One of my favorite episodes, yeah. Yeah, we, you know, I have a lot of friends that are sort of deeply enmeshed in the, you know, conservative, like CBMW world and all of that. And many of them like agreed with so many of the critiques we had of Mark. And I've said this many places. I, I may have said it on the podcast. I can't recall, but the best critique, the harshest and best critique that I read of real marriage was published in their journal. I mean, it was an annihilation of the book. In the biblical manhood and womanhood. Yeah, that. In the, yeah, in their journal, was yeah. it was the best critique. Now, I mean, that was years and years later, but um, it was a phenomenal critique. Heath Lambert wrote it. But, the you know, we deliberately ended that episode talking about voices like, Sarah Bessie and Rachel mm -hmm. Evans. And, you know, there are ways in which kind of the evangelical orthodoxy, like they've, they've moved to places they, that are sort of outside of those, those boundaries. And we didn't end that episode sort of stamping that and making that clear, like, oh, by the way, just make sure you want to know. And I think there was some frustration from some listeners and especially my more conservative friends asking like, Hey, why did you leave it that way? Why did you do it that way? And I feel comfortable to a certain extent, I feel comfortable saying, I want to leave it on your own shoulders to like draw the conclusion. And I don't think the conclusion is necessarily they're right about everything and they're wrong about everything. Again, like I'm, I am still an evangelical, but I think this was the story very clearly where Rachel was right about some things that all these other people that were around Mark got wrong and they got it wrong for a long time. They got it wrong for about a decade until people started to like go, Hey, this is a problem. And there was finally some voices speaking up. And to me, it was like, I don't want to put a bow on that for you because I think you need to sit with the responsibility of it. Or, and if not, maybe not responsibility, but just the burden of it, that our movement needs to, to say, Hey, when, when there are alarms being sounded by women saying, this is a problem. Think about the implications. Look what's happening. Maybe we shouldn't be tribal in the way we defend. And I think a lot of the defense of Mark was tribal, simply in the sense that, like, we really like what he's saying about atonement. So we're going to, you know, and, and she thinks something different about atonement and about inerrancy and about, mm -hmm. you know, human sexuality and all of that. So we're going to just stick with Camp Mark instead of doing what I think is the nuanced and healthy thing, which is like, 
hey, I can hold my convictions about some things that I differ from Rachel on, but man, she was dead on about that stuff. Yeah, tribal is a good word for it. Well, Mike, thank you for making the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and thanks for talking with me today. We I, we have to go. We have more things to attend to. I could talk to you about this for another couple hours, and and Lord willing, someday over beers, I'll be able to do that. Anything you're working on now that you can tease for us? Yeah, well, I, what I can say is this year, CT has... I think we were looking at, we have about four new shows that'll be coming later this year. And I think every single one of them, new ones, ones that are kind of being rebranded and relaunched, we are trying to elevate to the highest level of production we can we can do. And I'll be working on a new long form series. We have bonus episodes of Mars Hill coming just here in the next couple of weeks. And when those are done, I'll be working on the next series. Awesome, man. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. 